Most of you have probably seen the uh, scheduled change for the part one yogis posted on the board. And we'll talk about that tomorrow, but we just notice how even something that simple can impact your minds. When the Buddha taught, he used a variety of teaching styles. And one of the ways that he communicated and expressed the Dharma was through the use of analogy. I think he was actually quite a master at analogy. For me, when I read the analogies that the Buddha offered, I find that they're very They seem so appropriate and apt, and it's like the teaching comes in from a different angle or something. Um, The the image that's created in my mind around the analogy often goes in in a different way than simple words do. So they kind of provide an intuitive way that we can connect with the teachings. So tonight I'd like to explore two analogies that the Buddha offered, and they're both quite familiar, you probably are familiar with one or the other or both of these analogies. And they both have to do with, they're both water analogies. The Buddha used water a lot in his his analogies. Both of these have to do with crossing a vast expanse of water or a flood. So the meaning of the flood, before I actually get into into these analogies, I just want to explore a little bit about what this means, what this flood means. He explicitly said in one teaching that the floods, the flood that he's referring to in these analogies refers to the the, the four floods, the flood of sensuality, the flood of existence, the flood of views, the flood of ignorance. And it's said that they're called a flood because these aspects of our mind keep us submerged in the round of existence, in samsara. Not able to find our way to freedom from suffering. For me, the resonant qualities of mind that this particular list, the four floods, is not talked about that much in the suttas. But all of these unwholesome states that are referred to in the flood, in the floods, are grounded in what we could call the three unwholesome roots of greed, aversion, and delusion. And so that's the way I relate to this notion of flood and of crossing the flood. That we're we're crossing over this flood of greed, aversion, and delusion. We get swept away by greed, aversion, and delusion. We kind of get drowned in these states of mind. We try to arrange things to suit us. We try to arrange our lives for even small moments, so that we can have things be the way we like them to be. 
kind of think of this as coming up for a breath of air. But it doesn't last long. Things fall apart. And so then we have to work again. We have to struggle again to find a way to come up for another breath of air, arrange things again. And again, it doesn't last very long. We're submerged again. I think you all know this sense of being submerged by these qualities of mind. And the struggle of using our habitual, familiar ways of getting that breath of air and seeing that it's just an endless struggle. I'm reminded of the the saying of the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland. You see here, it takes all the running you can do to stay in one place. So in these being flooded by greed, aversion, and delusion, we're not able to navigate our lives very skillfully. So tonight I'd like to explore two of these analogies about crossing the flood. And I think we actually have a lot to learn about about practice and what the Buddha had to say by kind of looking at the various parts of the analogy, by kind of unpacking it a little bit. So I'd like to explore these two analogies in some detail. And the two, uh, the first one is the simile of the raft. And I'll read, I'll read this to you and then, and then go over parts of it. I'll read a little bit of it to you and then do a little bit of commentary and then I'll read a little bit and do a little commentary. Suppose a man in the course of a journey saw a great expanse of water whose near shore was dangerous and fearful and whose further shore was safe and free from fear, but there was no ferry boat or bridge going to the far shore. So a couple of the parts of the analogy so far. First is this near shore that's dangerous The Buddha equates this near shore with identity. Now, why is identity dangerous? He says that the near shore is dangerous. Some identities are obviously dangerous just in their being, in their way of feeling. I mean, I have had various identities that have felt dangerous. The identity of self-hatred, of being miserable. I'm, yeah, I'm the miserable person. Well, I'm happy now, but I know that really what I am is miserable. So those identities, those, those very identities can feel, well, they, at the very least, they feel unpleasant, uncomfortable. So that's one way that identities are dangerous. And then there's those other identities that we feel somehow like, well, this is the way it's supposed to be when I feel like I know how to do things, when I feel like I'm right, when I feel like I'm a good person, when I feel like whatever, fill in the blank. They're kind of a way, these identities are a kind of a way of 
feeling stable, secure, it's like, yeah, this is me. This is when it feels right. This is when it feels good. This is the way it's supposed to be. So it's kind of like this solid feeling and it, there's a sense of what feels like safety or security there. But it's an illusory kind of safety. And in the analogy, the near shore is solid. It's at least not in the expanse of water. But the Buddha says it's a dangerous place. In clinging to an identity in particular, again, we have this, we have to make this effort to protect, to defend it to make sure that other people agree with this identity, that they, they see that this is who we really are. There's a kind of an endless need to prop up this identity, and we suffer when some experience or other, or some circumstance or other, undercuts that sense of solidity, of security in that identity. I know that I saw for on one retreat, I really got very familiar with two patterns that I saw kind of playing off of each other. One was, I'm a good yogi. The other one was, I'm a failure. And how these, these two identities, I mean, when I was in that place of feeling like I was a good yogi, it's like, yeah, that's what it's supposed to be like. That's what I'm supposed to be and do I was, try- I was trying to find a way that I could have that identity and get rid of the other identity. And what I discovered, kind of to my surprise, was that these two identities were intimately interconnected. There wasn't a way to have one without the other. The very having of that identity of I'm a good yogi was the setup. Because we can't always have things the way we think they should be. And so when for a few moments or hours I couldn't be very mindful or the mind was wandering a lot, it's like, well, I'm a failure. I'm not that good yogi. So these identities are a dangerous place. They create suffering. The second part of this analogy, the vast expanse of water... This is the flood, and I've already spoken about this a little bit. The other part that we've talked about so far is the far shore. And the Buddha equates the far shore with Nibbana, freedom from suffering, freedom from needing to do, needing to protect, needing to defend, freedom from clinging. Freedom from greed, aversion, and delusion. So to continue with the analogy. So we have this man who's on a journey and he's come to this place. And he thinks, there is this great expanse of water whose near shore is dangerous and fearful and whose further shore is safe and free from fear. But there's no ferry boat or bridge going to that far shore. Suppose I collect grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and bind them together into a raft. And supported by that raft, and making an effort with my hands and feet, 
I got safely across to the far shore. And then the man collected grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and bound them together into a raft. And supported by the raft, and making an effort with his hands and feet, he got safely across to the far shore. So there's a few parts to this aspect of the analogy that I'd like to kind of unpack and look at. The first is the raft itself. This raft that by which we cross over this flood of greed, aversion, and delusion. In in exploring this analogy, Ajahn Sumedho wrote something that really spurred my thinking on this whole analogy and prompted me to really look at the various parts of this analogy. He wrote, The Buddha referred to his teaching as a raft, which you can make out of the things around you. You don't have to have a special motorboat or submarine or luxury liner. A raft is something you make from the things around just to get across to the other shore. We're not trying to make a super-duper vehicle. We're just able to use what's around us for enlightenment. So this is actually quite inspiring to me, this notion of the raft being created from just what's at hand. And what's at hand is our present moment experience. Wherever we are, whatever's happening, we have our sense experience. Sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and things happening in the mind. So the, the raft is built in part out of our moment to moment sense experience. The other part of the raft, in fact, what I think of as the binding for the raft, is the Dharma. The Buddha equates the raft with the Eightfold Path. Wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. We can look at the path as a way to meet our moment-to-moment experience. It's the binding that holds the raft together, our moment-to-moment experience, our sense experience. We meet it with wise understanding, the intention to engage. We meet it with wise effort and mindfulness, and it cultivates concentration. On retreat... Our um, one, one, one retreat that I was sitting with Sayadaw Ujjanaka, he went, he went over how this Eightfold Path is really a moment-to-moment unfolding. It's not, necess- it's not necessarily something that just unfolds over a long course of time. It's in each moment we're cultivating the, the entire Eightfold Path. And for the, the three... Um, aspects of ethical conduct, wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood, he pointed out those are fulfilled by abstaining. And so here on retreat, those aspects are fulfilled by the abandoning of killing, taking what's not given, all of the precepts that we're working with. 
one's livelihood is fulfilled by engaging in the practice of meditation, why speech is primarily fulfilled by silence. So moment to moment, we are cultivating the Eightfold Path by meeting our experience. Using this combination of our moment to moment experience and the Eightfold Path, we cross over this flood of greed, aversion, and delusion. And this is the raft built out of our present moment experience and bound together with the Dharma. Another aspect of this analogy of the crossing of the flood that I resonate with is this notion of being on a raft. You know, a raft is pretty... um, Creaky. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you're not going to stay dry, right? You know, you're on the raft, you're not going to stay dry. You're going to be in contact with that stream while you cross over it. You're going to be in contact with the flood of greed, aversion, and delusion as you cross over it. The raft helps keep you afloat so you're not drowning in it, but you're in contact with it. We don't cross over the flood of greed, aversion, and delusion by somehow magically floating up in the air and flying across. We have to meet the difficulties. We have to meet the flood in order to cross over it. It's not a mistake when we turn with mindfulness to our experience and see anger, aversion, longing, pride, arrogance, frustration, ignorance. It's not a mistake. The practice is bringing these into our awareness. The practice doesn't create these states. It uncovers them. It allows us to see them in the space of mindfulness where We have an opportunity to, rather than having them run us, make our choices for us, if they're not seen, if these, these states motivated by greed, aversion, and delusion are not seen with mindfulness, they're going to be running the show. They're going to be making our choices for us. And so this being on the raft with mindfulness, with effort, with concentration, with understanding and intention, we meet those states of greed, aversion, and delusion, and we aren't swept away by them. We can cross, we can navigate them. The other piece, he says, making an effort with hands and feet. He got safely to the far shore. So, you know, we build the raft, and we can't just, like, go out into the water and sit there. You know, we got to make some effort. We've got to head in a direction. 
If we just go out and drift, pretty unlikely, even floating on this raft that will actually get to the far shore, we need to make the effort. Engage with the practices of the Eightfold Path. Make the effort to stay present. This effort is the kind of resonant piece of the second analogy that I want to bring in. So I'll shift to that one for a few moments. So this analogy is, uh, it's a time the Buddha was sitting in meditation and he was visited by a deva. And the deva came to ask him a question. How, did, how dear sir, did you cross the flood? By not halting, friend, and by not straining, I crossed the flood. But how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and by not straining you crossed the flood? When I came to a standstill, friend, then I sank. But when I struggled, then I got swept away. It is in this way, friend, that by not halting and by not straining I crossed the flood. So one of the notes about this sutta said that there's, there's meant to be a little bit of a paradox in this analogy of not halting and straining, crossing a flood. The, the, the comment in the note says that typically how you would cross a raging stream would be to find a foothold, stop there, look, find the next place where you could make a step, and then rush past that or rush quickly through the, the, the raging stream to get to that next foothold, rest for a minute. That's not what the Buddha describes for crossing the flood of greed, aversion, and delusion. Another translation of this that is my resonant translation. You know, in, in reading the suttas, actually, I recommend, if you get interested in reading the suttas, to find multiple versions of the suttas, a sutta that you like. If you find that there's a particular sutta you're interested in, find different translations of the sutta because we're reading translation. And so different uses of words can highlight or resonate with us somewhat differently. And so there's a sutta, another version of this that translates these words. By neither tarrying nor hurrying, I crossed the flood. When I tarried, I sank. When I hurried, I was swept away. So that for me has been the image that, and the words that have resonated with me. Neither tarrying nor hurrying. So the first thing I want to point out about this that I personally take some inspiration from is that the Buddha says, when I tarried, I sank. When I hurried, I was swept away. He didn't do it perfectly. He had to experiment. He had to find what worked, what allowed him to cross the stream. We also need to do this. We need to experiment and observe what happens. Observe what supports us in our practice. What helps us 
to cross the flood? What sweeps us away? What makes us sink? Well, this is, again, it's not a mistake. When we find ourselves tarrying and hurrying, sinking and being swept away, we learn from that. The Buddha learned from it, and we can follow his example. So I want to explore this notion of tarrying and hurrying. The, the commentaries talk about a bunch of different ways that tarrying and hurrying uh, can be understood. And I'm not going to follow the commentaries so much, but I'm going to explore how some of the ways that I found in my own experience, these, this image of sinking, of tarrying and sinking and hurrying and swept away, how I felt it in my own practice. The first kind of most obvious one of tarrying is the kind of sleepiness, dullness of that sloth, of that hindrance, where we're just sunk into oblivion. It's a feeling of sinking there. This is tarrying in our practice. We are not engaging. And the kind of counterpoint to that of restlessness is a form of hurrying. When the mind is restless and not able to really meet and connect with experience. It's like we get swept away. We land on something for a minute and then our minds get swept away. And related to these two of dullness and restlessness, uh, for tarrying, a kind of a laziness or an indulgence. You know, that we find ourselves kind of indulging or uh, indulging a pattern of thought. It's almost like we're in a whirlpool. You know, in, in, using another water analogy, that we get caught into a whirlpool of thinking. And we don't go very far. We're kind of sinking into the water in that whirlpool of thinking. And on the other side of laziness is over-efforting. Anxious for results. For me, again, that has had a feeling of, it's not so much sinking, but it just, it doesn't really feel like I'm really connecting. It's like being swept away on the current. Not meeting experience moment by moment. And then another way to explore this tarrying and hurrying is by looking at greed and aversion. We can think of greed as being a kind of tarrying. We get stuck on something. Oh, this is pleasant. I think I'll just hang out with this for a while. And it could be anything. I mean, it could be a very blissful state of meditation that we just kind of get stuck into. Or it could be a pleasant fantasy. That the kind of the pleasantness of it catches us. And we just get stuck there. Or aversion where we have a sense of we don't like an experience and rather than meeting it, we want to rush past it, go on to something else. That would be rushing past our experience from aversion. Then there's the aversion aspect which can can be a tarrying. I'm very familiar with this one actually. This is a way that my my mind tends to 
work with aversion. I get stuck to things that I don't like, trying to get rid of them. That's a kind of tarrying. How can I fix this? How can I change this? How can I control this? How can I get rid of this? Or with greed, we can have the the sense of being swept away by greed, just the kind of anxiousness to, oh, the next pleasant experience. Where's the next pleasant experience? How can I get the next good thing? The commentaries do mention that one of the ways of exploring this tarrying and hurrying is through looking at that we can be sunk into unwholesome states of mind and caught by, swept away from the true goal, by wholesome states of mind. This is an interesting one, I think, to explore. That yes, the the unwholesome states of mind catch us and drag us down. But we can get caught by wholesome states. Feeling like, oh, this this is what is the most important thing. Being with this state of bliss and missing out on the... Um, the understanding, the wisdom that we can cultivate through the states of combining the concentration with mindfulness. So we can get swept away from the true goal, not able to actually land on the far shore by being caught, caught by these wholesome states. Another sutta explores something that's not connected particularly in any of the commentaries with tarrying and hurrying, but I found this, and it it resonated for me, again, in my own experience, ways that I get stuck and swept away. And this is a sutta about investigation. And the Buddha said, one should investigate so that consciousness is not distracted and diffused externally and internally is not fixed. So what does that mean? For me, again, it's not explained anywhere that I've seen, but I have seen in my own experience at times that when I'm investigating something, if I'm looking at something, it's kind of like, my mind goes, oh, look at that thing. Let me put that under the microscope and really look at it. And it's almost as if I hold onto it in order to look at it. I think that's what it means by being fixed internally. That we kind of get stuck in the pattern of investigation, holding onto something in order to look at it. Distracted externally, in my, connect- my connection with that is that we can move into looking at the outer experience, looking for explanations of why things are happening in our history, in, in, in our surroundings, essentially in our external environment. We look for the reasons for why things are happening as opposed to really seeing moment to moment that Suffering, its causes are happening in the present moment. 
that's another way to look at this tarrying and hurrying. For me, this image of tarrying and neither tarrying nor hurrying has been a really supportive image, actually. You know, just almost envisioning the Buddha crossing this stream like walking on water, just with a very steady pace. Each time the foot meets the water, it comes up, but it meets the water. It meets it and then it comes up and it meets it and it comes up. Just that very steady meeting of experience, moment by moment. On long retreat, this image has been so helpful to me. Just keep going. Just keep going. Moment by moment, just meet what's right in front of you. And whether we're at on retreat or at home, whatever is happening, we can just meet with this very steady pace, moment by moment. Meeting things we like with balance of mind, not holding on to them, trying to keep them, not lost in thoughts about how to control it or get more of it. Meeting things we don't like with balance of mind, really meeting it without rushing over it, but also without getting stuck to it, trying to figure out how to change it or fix it or get rid of it. And meeting things that we usually ignore. Actually, I think in the ignoring, we can both get sunk and swept away. Kind of like things that we're not really connecting with can kind of grab us from behind and either pull us down or send us off. So meeting the things that we usually ignore moment by moment, every experience. So returning to the raft analogy. We left our protagonist at the far shore. He had made it across. And the sutta continues. The Buddha says, Then, when he had got across and had arrived at the far shore, he might think thus, This raft has been very helpful to me, since supported by it and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. Suppose I were to hoist it on my head or load it on my shoulder and then go wherever I want. Now, what do you think? By doing so, would that man be doing what should be done with the raft? No, venerable sir. By doing what would the man be doing what should be done with the raft? When that man got across and had arrived at the far shore, he might think thus, This raft has been very helpful to me, since supported by it in making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. Suppose I were to haul it onto the dry land or set it adrift in the water and then go wherever I want. Now, bhikkhus, it is by doing that that the man would be doing what should be done with the raft. So I have shown you how the Dhamma is similar to a raft for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. When you know the Dhamma to be similar to a raft, you should abandon even good states, how much more so bad states. So there's a lot to explore in this. 
So letting go even of wholesome states. So the image here is of having crossed over, then setting the raft adrift. The letting go is, it's not so much a pushing away, it's, it's a not clinging to. But the, one of the key pieces here, I think, is that you know, we can't let go of this raft too soon. We have to use the raft in order to navigate the flood. So the Buddha doesn't recommend letting go of the raft while we're in the middle of the stream. I think that in hearing this teaching of letting go of everything, letting go of craving, letting go of wanting, and we see how when we're engaged in the practice that there is wanting, wanting to be mindful. And we've talked about this. We've talked about the, the notion of wholesome, the possibility for wholesome desire of the chanda that can be associated with wholesome states and the unwholesome desire, that we let go of the unwholesome desire, the unwholesome craving and Try to connect with the the wish that's associated with the wholesome. But there can be a kind of a confusion that happens when people hear this teaching about letting go and they see that they want to be mindful, they want to cultivate these qualities of concentration, of effort, And then they realize, oh, but I'm not supposed to want anything. We have to build the raft. We have to use mindfulness, effort, concentration in order to cross this flood. If we let go of the raft too soon, or if we think, if we we think, I'm not supposed to want mindfulness, so I'm not going to do anything to be mindful, If I find myself wanting mindful, I won't engage in that mindfulness. And what the instruction there is, notice the wanting. It's not to let go of the mindfulness. It's to notice the wanting. So we use the teachings, which helps us to let go of suffering. And there's likely to be some clinging in this process. And the path kind of can unfold. One, one way to look at this is kind of as a staged letting go. That we start our practice and a lot of what we see initially and for a long time in our cycles of practice, we see real challenges. Dukkha, dukkha. We see the pain of afflictive emotions, the pain of holding on to wanting things to be the way we want them to be. We really experience that suffering. And we use wholesome states of mind to begin to let go of those unwholesome states of mind. This is using the raft to cross over the flood. 
using these wholesome states to let go of the unwholesome. And then we start to see as we practice that we're holding on to to those wholesome states. We begin to see that there's suffering, there's clinging in those wholesome states as well. And then we need to start looking at that. So practice can kind of unfold by stages here. And the Buddha actually pointed to this. He said, Before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, I, too, clearly saw, as it actually is, with proper wisdom, how sensual pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering, and much despair, and how great is the danger in them. But as long as I did not attain to the rapture and pleasure that are apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, or to something more peaceful than that, I recognized that I could still be attracted to sensual pleasures. But when I clearly saw, as it actually is with proper wisdom, how sensual pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering, much despair, and how great is the danger in them, and I had attained to the rapture and pleasure that are apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, or to something more peaceful than that, I recognized that I was no longer attracted to sensual pleasures. So here the Buddha is pointing to the, the wholesome pleasure of meditation, the wholesome pleasure of concentration and meditation as a being a way to kind of surmount or let go of the dependence that we have on happiness coming from sense pleasure. This is kind of the only way we think that that happiness can come until we actually meet another way. And so there is this Depending, and depending on the wholesome states of concentration, of insight, we let go of the unwholesome. And then in another place he said, kind of similarly, but pointing to a little bit more realization, I see other beings who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures, being devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, burning with fever for sensual pleasures, indulging in sensual pleasures, and I do not envy them. Why is that? Because there is a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. So here he's pointing beyond the happiness of wholesome states themselves to a state that surpasses divine bliss. And the commentaries point this to freedom, to the freedom of complete liberation. So this is, I think, what he's pointing to when he says letting go of the raft once we've crossed over, letting go even of the wholesome. Now, in my own experience exploring this navigation of when to let go of the wholesome, my own guideline, rule of thumb, is to use suffering as a guide. 
So as we explore our experience, I mean, I just go through some various ways I've used this suffering as a guide and ways I think that you've probably seen some of this as well. You know, as we practice, as I said, that there's a lot of unwholesome states that we meet. And as we bring mindfulness to that, we start to see that the unwholesome states start to fall away. Sometimes we see, you know, we bring clear mindfulness right to a difficulty, and whew, it just falls apart. And so we start to want that falling apart. An unwholesome state comes up, and we bring mindfulness to it in order that that thing will go away. Oh, here's, here's a painful experience. Oh, let me be mindful of it. Then it'll go away. This is a clinging around mindfulness. It's, a, it's an attitude in the mind. It's an agenda. Essentially, it's an agenda around why be mindful so that these difficulties will go away. So we start to see, actually, and I know you've all seen this, how this agenda just gets in the way. When we have that agenda for, I want, I want to be mindful in order that this will go away, we often find that it kind of just locks things in place. So we have to start seeing that agenda itself. Now, it doesn't mean that we stop being mindful. It doesn't mean that we let go of mindfulness just because there's an agenda there. It means we turn that mindfulness to include the agenda. Kind of like the agenda and the mindfulness begin to get decoupled so that we can bring that mindfulness without that agenda. Initially, it kind of seems hard to do that. I mean, how do we decouple that? We decouple it by turning and noticing the agenda itself and noticing the suffering of the agenda, using suffering as our guide. By using suffering as our guide, I mean this is where we need to turn our attention to, bring our mindfulness to. And then as we continue in our practice, maybe some of these more obvious agendas begin to fall away, but we get really interested in our experience. We really want to understand what's happening. This can be a very helpful agenda at times. If we're in the midst of an aversion tack, wanting to understand it is very helpful. And yet this wanting to understand, I've seen in my own practice, this wanting to understand, wanting to know, becomes a kind of a habit and a pattern in, in itself. And the, the wanting to know becomes the, the important piece It's like, I'm not okay unless I understand this, unless I know this. So this wanting to know is a kind of a subtler form of wanting, a wanting to understand, a kind of subtler form of wanting. And when, at least in my own experience, what I've seen is that at some point, that very wanting becomes clearly suffering. And that's when I need to turn and look at that habit I don't necessarily, you know, worry about it too much. If I see, oh, wanting to understand while I'm engaged in observing an aversion attack, I'm not so worried about that wanting to understand. 
But when the mind is more balanced, the, there's a flow of experience, and the mind leaps in wanting to understand, again, it's kind of like that tarrying. It steps into the experience, it fixes on it, it says, what is this? We sink into that experience. So again, beginning to notice this agenda. That's all that the practice asks of us. Turn towards what is creating the suffering itself. That wanting to understand at some point is the suffering and needs to be seen. How is, what is the clinging around that? What is the suffering there? I've also seen myself in my practice kind of holding on to mindfulness, doing the mindfulness, kind of pushing the mindfulness. Oh, I need to be mindful, I need to be mindful, I need to be mindful. And in seeing that, beginning to see that there's an over-efforting there, a pushing in to try to be mindful. that over-efforting can bring a kind of a struggle to it. Again, when we notice the suffering of that, that's when to turn to explore it. One of my favorite ways to explore this over-efforting is to ask myself the question. So noticing that over-efforting, turning to notice, okay, yep, over-efforting is happening. And then ask myself the question, How little effort do I need to make in order to be mindful here? That one question has been hugely supportive for me. I actually find I can let go quite a lot of the doing of the mindfulness. To my surprise, I don't have to do the mindfulness in order to be mindful. Mindfulness gets its own momentum. And we're we're getting in its way, essentially, by at some point by that trying to be mindful. So again, this is kind of an agenda behind the mindfulness that we can see. And we can see the suffering of it. When we begin to experience the suffering of it, that's when we look at it. Sometimes we can be in a state of beautiful, expansive clarity, calm, quiet, no problem really seems like a very pure experience. And it doesn't seem like there's any suffering in there at all. No clinging at all. So those are times that are they're great to kind of just check into and, and see, you know, just kind of get familiar with those, that experience. And it's also helpful at times like that to check Explicitly check your relationship with that experience. What is your relationship to this state of blissful, peace, calm, quiet, purity? On one retreat, I noticed, I noticed this, just this kind of state, and it did not feel like there was any clinging in the state at all. It felt so pure. And then I checked, and what's my attitude? There was a subtle, just a very subtle leaning in, trying to make it continue. A little doing to hold on to that state. 
when I noticed that, the mind was clear enough that all I had to do is just notice that subtle clinging to the state, and it let go. The next thing was arose was clear suffering, wanting it to continue. And again, that was seen and that was let go. The next thing was fear that it wouldn't continue. <laughs> and the next thing that arose was joy that the mind had uncovered. Because it was kind of, the mind was, I was blown away. You know, I had no idea there was defilement in that state. I had no idea. So this practice of checking the attitude, checking our relationship with experience, is a key practice. In fact, all of these examples that I'm giving are looking at essentially the clinging that is there is in the relationship with the practice. It's in the relationship with the mindfulness. So this checking into what is my relationship to what, I'm, what the experience is. Very helpful for uncovering this kind of clinging, even to wholesome states. The last part of the analogy of the letting go altogether I just want to say something about that because you know, the, the analogy has the raft set adrift. And the raft is the Eightfold Path. So I just want to kind of explore that and bring in some teachings from some other places. One piece here is that the letting go of the wholesome states once one has fully crossed over greed, aversion, and delusion. The understanding isn't that they have somehow transcended those wholesome states and that they don't apply. In one sutta, the Buddha says, about the Eightfold Path, right view comes first. And how does right view come first? In one of right view, right intention comes into being. In one of right intention, right speech comes into being. In one of right speech, right action comes into being. In one of right action, right livelihood comes into being. In one of right livelihood, right effort. In one of right effort, right mindfulness. In one of right mindfulness, right concentration. In one of right concentration, right knowledge comes into being. In one of right knowledge, right deliverance comes into being. Thus, the path of the disciple in higher training possesses eight factors, the standard eightfold path. The arhat possesses ten factors, the eightfold path plus right knowledge and right deliverance. So in this crossing over the flood, my understanding here is that someone who has fully transcended greed, aversion, and delusion is living the Eightfold Path. They don't have to try to do it. They don't have to hold on to it. It's just simply an expression of their being. The Buddha says the Arhant, the fully awakened one, possesses the ten factors, the Eightfold Path plus right knowledge and right deliverance. 
So in a way, we can think of our following the Eightfold Path, engaging in the Eightfold Path moment by moment, as a way of modeling what it's like to be liberated. The path and the goal, the freedom from suffering, the way one behaves in the world. My understanding of this is that the way one behaves in the world is through living the Eightfold Path. And so we can, by following this path, also live the Eightfold Path. Maybe not in that pure way where it doesn't take any effort. But I like this notion that what we're doing to engage in the practice is very much how the practice, how how our life will be with complete freedom. So let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.